The Thomistic Institute's Study Abroad program is currently accepting applications for the spring of 2023. Our program, Ancient and Medieval Rome, Crossroads of Intellectual Traditions, brings university students from around the world to the heart of the eternal city of Rome. They'll live just minutes from the Colosseum, and they'll study at the world-renowned Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Visit ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash Rome to learn more. Financial aid and scholarships are available to qualifying students. This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. section of this topic uh, said, Professor, you're not working on the history of the impossible. You're really working on the history of the ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I disagree, and I disagree vehemently with such a summation of what I'm doing. Miracles are a problem in the 21st century. They've been a problem for Westerners since the 16th century. And um, Part of my lecture today will cover this when, when this turn takes place, that miracles become problematic. But miracles are far from ridiculous. Miracles get to the very core of religion, no matter what religion you're talking about, because miracles are instances of the natural world being taken over by the supernatural realm by definition, as we shall see. So let's get to it. St. Augustine of Hippo, fourth, fifth century. In the city of God, already uh, enemies of the Christian religion are asking, why, why don't you have the miracles that your stories have? You know? Why, they say, are those miracles which you affirm were wrought formerly no longer happening, right? I might indeed reply, miracles were necessary before the world believed in order that it might believe. And that's a very old Christian argument, right? That a miracle is something that spurs belief because it is so out of the ordinary. Even now, miracles are wrought in the name of Christ, whether by his sacraments or the prayers or relics of his saints. I want you to focus on this by his sacraments prayers or relics of his saints. This is key to understanding how this develops in the Christian religion. And then this final paragraph, I won't read to you completely. Basically, he says, look, I don't have time to list all the miracles I could list because there are so many, just too many for me. If I'm ever going to finish this book, I can't list them all. So they are happening in the fourth and fifth century, mostly healing miracles. Because as you shall see, we need to make a distinction between miracles which are possible and miracles that are impossible, according to our frame of reference, our outlook on how the world works. And in his argument against uh, Manichaean, Augustine was a Manichaean in his youth. These are a, a religious group that believe there are really two divine powers, one good and one evil. But in arguing against Faustus, Augustine replied to his charge that 
Christian miracles were contrary to nature, right? to the laws of nature. So even in the late antique world, we find intellectuals uh, speaking about the laws of nature, what is possible, what's impossible. Faustus had said miracles that Christians proclaim have to be impossible because of the laws of nature. And Augustine replied by distinguishing two ways in which the expression contrary to nature may be taken. If it is understood to mean contrary to the divinely established and universal order of things, then clearly God can no more act in this way than he can act against himself. And when we come around to the 18th century, you will see Voltaire making exactly the same argument. But Augustine added, there is no impropriety in saying God does something against nature when it is contrary to what we know of nature. In other words, what seems contrary to natural law is the fact that we don't fully comprehend natural law or God's power over natural law. Our friend, Thomas Aquinas, after whom this, uh, the Institute is, is named in its, its usual manner in the Summa Contra Gentilis, uh, gives us a very careful definition. A miracle is a sensible effect produced by God which transcends all the forces of nature. Very interesting term, and the translation is correct transcends, not contradicts, in the very same way that he said that grace does not destroy nature, but perfects nature, right? The two things are not contradictory, nature and supernature, nature and the supernatural. And um, a Dominican brother named uh, Dominic Dolan explains in his article of St. Thomas and Miracles, that for Thomas, a miracle does not contradict, destroy, antagonize, or violate the laws of nature and the forces of nature. But it exceeds all the inherent powers of the forces of nature, and it is something that happens as an exception to the established order. But God has dominion over the natural order. So there we have a very technical definition of miracle. Then comes Martin Luther in the 16th century. The major Protestant reformers rejected this definition. They also rejected the notion that miracles could still happen. This position is known as the cessation of miracles and it was adopted by all of the major Protestant reformers of the 16th century. The argument went something like this. Remember the definition of miracle is something that inspires wonder and belief. Their argument was miracles were necessary to establish the infant church in the first century. And the apostles were given the gift of miracles for that very purpose. But when the last apostle died, John, around the year 100, no more miracles because the religion was already established. 
as you can imagine, polemically, right, and polemics and arguing who's right, who's wrong, there is no better way, one might assume, to prove that Catholicism is a false religion than by saying that all of the miracles that it claims are fake. Or, because this theory goes one step further, not only are the Catholics claimed by Catholics fake, very often, sometimes strange things do happen. But it's the devil. It's the devil who's performing all this. More about him in some minutes. So that's Martin Luther on miracles. They're simply signs for the ignorant, unbelieving crowd. And for their sakes that are yet to be attracted. But as for us, who know already all that we know and believe in the gospel, what do we want them for? And second generation major reformer, John Calvin, same thing. But notice the turn here. We may also fitly remember Satan has his miracles, which though they are deceitful tricks rather than true powers, are such a sort as to mislead the simple-minded and untutored. So in order to be a believing Catholic, in other words, you have to be really stupid or uneducated. Idolatry has been nourished by wonderful miracles, yet these are not sufficient to sanction the superstition either of magicians or idolaters. I'll pause for a second. By this time, 16th century, medieval theology uh, has developed demonology very fully. And in medieval demonology, the devil, okay, keep this in mind, the devil cannot perform miracles, not true genuine miracles that transcend the laws of nature. The devil is a creature. He's not divine. But he is a very old creature and a very smart creature. And he is a lot like the best of scientists. He understands how to manipulate the laws of nature and he understands how, within the laws of nature how to fool people or sometimes how to do things that seem to be contrary to nature. It's a very tricky argument. All the Protestant reformers, although they reject much of Catholic theology, accept this lock, stock, and barrel. The whole pack. Then it continues. Baruch Spinoza, a uh, Sephardic Jew who lived in Amsterdam and was actually excommunicated, uh, I mean, chased out of his own synagogue. Most of you uh, have heard of him. He argued that nature cannot be contravened, but that she preserves a fixed and immutable course. So miracle is by definition a sheer absurdity. And his logic goes like this. The will of God is identical with the laws of nature. Miracle violates the laws of nature. So necessarily, God's will is inviolable. So therefore, number four, miracles cannot happen. Very, very reasonable. Voltaire, you've heard his argument already. It is impossible a being infinitely wise can have made, could have made laws to violate them. 
He could not derange the machine, but with a view of making it work better. But it is evident that God, all-wise, omnipotent, originally made this immense machine, the universe, as good and perfect as he was able. If he saw some imperfections would arise from the nature of matter, he provided for that in the beginning, and accordingly he will never, never, I'll add, I'm adding a next one, never, change anything in it. And David Hume, who uh, eschews aviator glasses, apparently, among those who craft these images. Classic work, Hume's of Miracles, 1748. Miracle is, notice that definition, a violation of the laws of nature. And as a firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against the miracle from the very nature of the fact is as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. The plain consequence is, and it is a maxim worthy of our attention, that no testimony is sufficient to establish a miracle unless the testimony be of such a kind that its falsehood would be more miraculous than the fact which it endeavors to establish. A miracle supported by any human testimony is more properly a subject of derision than an argument. I'll pause for a second, because this is very important. All I can do as a historian is rely on testimony. Well, I cannot go back in the past and, and certify that miracles happened. So all I have is testimony, right? Much as in a court of law, all I have are witnesses recorded. Somebody wrote down their testimony. I, as a historian, cannot confirm any miracle in the past. And it's damn difficult in the present also. But what I can do to say that the testimony is a fact. The testimony is a fact. And more than that, to use uh, terminology established by social scientists over a hundred years ago, the testimony is also a social fact. Insofar as people in that culture in which you're getting your testimony believe that it is possible. Because we do have accounts of flying people in court records, both in Inquisition court records, which is a church court, and in, in civil courts in witch trials. So we have this testimony. All I can do is bring my brackets with me. That's what we say. And bracket the question. Did such a thing happen? I have to bracket that question. The most I can say is, people say it happened. And this is what Hume is kind of getting at. No testimony, no testimony is believable when it comes to anything that is a violation of the laws of nature. Because here, by 1748, we've already gotten to a purely materialistic understanding of the universe. The spiritual has disappeared. Purely material. Ah, but the church strikes back in a very weird way. 
Uh, and this man plays a huge role in uh, the Catholic Enlightenment. Prospero Lambertini, who became Pope Benedict XIV, who, um, there are the titles that he amassed before he became Pope. I'll summarize what he did. By his day, earlier in the 17th century, the church had codified how miracle accounts are to be registered and evaluated in the process of declaring anyone saint. And as part of that process, to be rational and quote unquote scientific, the process began to require a doubter, somebody who would question all testimony, came to be known as the devil's advocate in canonization proceedings. Lambertini served as the devil's advocate for several years. And just before he was named Pope, he also wrote this massive, absolutely massive set of guidebooks on how to conduct investigations on sainthood and how you declare somebody blessed, how you declare somebody a saint. And it is a very rational enlightenment view of miracles and how you deal with testimony. And what happens is, in this time period, in the process of canonization, although miracles are still required for anyone to be proclaimed saint, the emphasis is placed instead on quote unquote heroic virtue. Something that everyone can observe. And uh, in the halls of academia, including this room, where as a student, I think I, I heard uh, Max Weber's name invoked more than once. Because everyone knows his theory about Calvinism and capitalism. That kept coming up in Reformation class. But Max Weber, whose mother was a Calvinist, argued that the key turning point in the transition to modernity, right, the point at which we truly, truly, genuinely enter the modern world is the Protestant Reformation. Because the Protestant Reformation disenchanted the world. The English word disenchantment does not do justice to the German Entzauberung. Because Zauber in German means magic. A better but clunky English translation would be that the Protestant Reformation demagified the world. Because of its argument about the cessation of miracles. And also one of its core pieces of theology, more so in some branches of the Reformation than others, but a core piece of its theology, that the natural and the supernatural don't really intersect all that much at all. And in our own century, these two books agree with Weber. Charles Taylor's A Secular Age and Brad Gregory's The Unintended Reformation. Both argue that this is a pivotal change and one might say a, an epic change. 
an epical change. The world is not the same after Protestantism precisely because of the way it deals with the supernatural. However, both Taylor and Gregory argue that this is not a good thing, that it hasn't been at all a very good thing. So, what do Protestants do with biblical miracles? The Bible is full of miracles. In the Old Testament, you've got tons of miracles. Here's one, the parting of the Red Sea. The New Testament is even more full of miracles. Read the four Gospels, and you, I, I, I dare you find a page in which some miracle is not taking place. Jesus is working miracles right and left. And the apostles, after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, they keep performing miracles. As a matter of fact, there's one passage that gave Protestants a lot of trouble. And this was from the Acts of the Apostles, where people stood by the side of the road just so that St. Peter's shadow could fall on them. Or they, they touched little pieces of cloth to Peter's body and then took them away. And those pieces of cloth and healing bodies. The uh, interpretation of these passages by the major Protestant reformers is very, very interesting. But there you have Jesus healing the blind man. But from the first century on, it is quite obvious to even the most hardened social scientists that Christians believed that the sacraments were a point of intersection between the natural and supernatural. And none of the sacraments was more of a joining of natural and supernatural than the Eucharist. And what later in the Middle Ages using Aristotelian terminology came to be known as transubstantiation, that the bread actually ceases to be bread. The wine ceases to be wine. It becomes literally the blood and body, flesh of Jesus. And this painting from the Reformation era depicts the Mass of St. Gregory, late 6th, early 7th century, who, according to legend, narratives. One day while saying Mass, he actually had Jesus show up on the altar. And not just Jesus, but all the instruments of his passion. Not just the cross, but the whips and everything else showed up. So that one could say, if one is a kind of sloppy medieval theologian, the most wonderful miracle that takes place is that people can't see this all the time because you're supposed to believe that it is happening. Right? But Protestants reject this. Luther believes there's real presence of Christ in the bread and wine, but it's still bread and wine. Other reformers just say, no, this is just a symbol, just a symbol. And then there are miracles in the lives of saints and miracles in modern marketing. <laughs> you can get a uh, COVID mask with this scene painted on it. Thomas Aquinas 
Miracles happen in the lives of saints all the time. Not only do they perform miracles, but miracles happen to them. You might be uh, familiar with this story. Thomas's family was very upset he was joining the Dominicans because it was a low-class order, brand new, had no prestige. So they lock him up in his room and threw a prostitute in to make him change his mind. He prayed really hard and uh, eventually at one point he just took a, a burning log and made a sign of the cross and the prostitute ran out screaming and married him. That's considered a miracle. This is how the painter Diego Velasquez captured this. Mingling of supernatural and natural representing the supernatural with these angels. Then there are miracles within mystical visions. And here you have the spiritual marriage of Catherine of Siena, a Dominican nun, with Christ. We have many of these accounts in women mystics. Notice that the infant Jesus is placing the wedding ring on Catherine's finger. An invisible ring, but of course in the painting it's visible to the viewer. And then there are physical miracles that accompany mystical ecstasy, the best known of which is the stigmata, receiving the nail holes of Jesus as well as the lance wound. And the first recorded instance of this is St. Francis of Assisi. And I love this painting by Bellini, which is in the Frick Gallery in New York, if you're ever in Manhattan. It's very expensive to get in, too expensive. But you can look at it up close, and here it's magnified. Bellini's painting is from 1480-something. This is modern for me, for me, my interpretation, because we don't see what Francis is seeing. And the miracle is occurring in a very, very almost unnoticeable way. The mark is very, very slight. However, if you read the oldest accounts of this happening to Francis, it's not a tiny little hole. It's actually a wound out of which some fleshly thing is protruding like a nail. So this is also part of mystical experience in the Middle Ages. Another such physical phenomenon of mysticism is levitation which is what I'm working on. <laughs> and uh, I haven't levitated yet, but I've been working on it for a while. Define gravity. Basic law of nature, right? There's no mention of it in the New Testament except for this kind of oblique mention. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Very oblique and obscure reference. Obscure in the sense that it's, it's, it's could be interpreted so many different ways. And once again, when do we find levitation? We find it in the first and second century. In an enemy of the early church, Simon Magus. But I don't have time to go into that. But actually he and St. Peter 
in the Acts of Peter, the non-canonical uh, second century text, actually have a miracle context. And Simon loses. But Francis, again, one of the first. And this is uh, captured by Giotto. He was beheld praying by night, his hands stretched out over the manner of a cross, his whole body uplifted from the earth and wrapped in a shining cloud. This, not just the levitating, but the shining becomes a characteristic of medieval and early modern levitation. And the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius Loyola, we have testimony of him levitating, and there's one such depiction of this. And notice he's glowing too. Now, let me pause for a second. I bring my brackets. I have to bracket whether this actually happened or not. There's another thing a historian can do. I can take a functionalist approach. I can become a functionalist, as all social scientists try to do, and analyze the behavior where the function it is serving. The functionalists would say, oh, Protestants are denying miracles. Protestants are denying the possibility of mystical ecstasy, and so on and so forth. So now, in the 16th century, Catholics begin to have a lot of these miracles take place. It's a way of proving the Protestants wrong. And that functionalist argument carries some weight, but it doesn't help to really examine the phenomenon completely and thoroughly. I don't think so. I made a graph. There are very, it's very hard to find accounts of levitation. But um, one French scholar did so almost 100 years ago, and I made a graph out of his statistics and the 16th and 17th century are the peak period for flying. <laughs> flying people. Good and bad. More Ignatius Loyola. And you see um, this and these are not a painting. These are engravings and they're produced by the thousands, right? And these images can be viewed by thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands, who even if they're illiterate, see this and might wonder what is going on. Same thing with Teresa of Avila, the founders of the Discalced Carmelites. And um, I'll pause for a second here too, because I have a lot of images to show you with texts I'm just going to focus on the images for the next few slides, right, rather than the text. But only first-person description that I have run across of what it feels like to live. And I'll summarize for you. She said it is like a powerful force that comes from under you and just pushes you. And if you resist, you will hurt like hell for a long time. <laughs> She said, uh, after these, she tried to resist these levitations, her hands hurt so much, her breasts hurt so much that she couldn't pick up her quill. Right. 
And there are hilarious scenes described of Teresa levitating because she had ordered the nuns to hold her down. And they jump on her. And hope she goes anyway. And there's one scene where she's at the kitchen and she's frying up something. And whoop, up she goes. And uh, the nuns are trying to pull her down, and but they're all worried she's going to spill the hot olive oil on their heads from the frying pan. You can't resist it. It's not something you ever will. It just happens to you. And she and fellow Carmelite, John of the Cross, levitated together um, on one instance. And here's a depiction of this. <clears throat> With lots of testimonies about it. And there's another rendition of this. And then there's this man. St. Joseph of Cupertino. No one ever in human history has levitated as much as this person. Or <laughs> let's put it this way. We don't have as many accounts of anyone levitating as we do with this person. Look at his dates. 1603 and 1663. For heaven's sakes, and I mean that literally. He was a nearly exact contemporary of Isaac Newton. And when Isaac Newton had to go home because of plague, just like we all did. I forget the years. He went back home to the farm. He could have, if he had wanted to, gone on a trip to Italy and run into Joseph. He could have, but he didn't. There are many paintings of Joseph, levitating, lying, the unique thing about him is not just the number of levitations, but the number of testimonies and the kind of people who testify that they saw this happen. And it was always a byproduct of mystical ecstasy. And quite often, if not always, he would let out a sound as he went up. And there are three Italian words for describing Strio, Rio, Urlo, right? And in many occasions, people testify that the sound he made as he went up made the building shake. But here's how extreme this man is. He's a Franciscan. He helps to uh, erect crosses out in the open when the laborers who are trying to erect them find them too heavy. When he sees the holy shrine of Loretto, up he goes. Same thing here. He levitates during the celebration of the Eucharist constantly. And here, let me add this to the picture. He is such a distraction for everyone that he lives with, and such a distraction for the community in which he finds himself, that the Franciscans keep sending him to ever more remote Franciscan places. And he spends the last years of his life as a prisoner in his cell. He has to stay there all the time except for Sunday mass. They let him come up, and they let him have one meal with his bread and his meat, but they find him that disturbing. He's processed by the Inquisition, as one might expect, and he's found to be 
And here, oh, he converts a Lutheran prince who had visited Italy and flies over his head. Because he not only levitates, he actually walks, right? And the Saxon prince becomes Catholic and um, loses his territory. He has to go to some other relative because he can't be a Catholic and be a ruler of Saxony. He heals people. In this case, he healed the young man who was going insane. But uh, as he put his hands on his head, he grabs his hair and whoop, up he goes with the young man. He uh, made the wife of the Admiral of Castile faint when he flew over her. <laughs> he levitated over Pope Urban VIII's head. And Pope Urban said, if I'm still alive when this guy dies, I'll testify in a canonization proceeding that he flew over my head. So we're not talking about, you know, dumb peasants being the witnesses. This is the, the, the pinnacle of not just the Catholic Church, but, you know, the Catholic world. Then, I find this very curious, and I haven't had much time to work on it in a sustained fashion, because I'm not an art historian. But beginning in the 17th century, we begin to see many, many artistic depictions of medieval levitations, of earlier saint levitations. We don't have any paintings or drawings of them levitating in their own day, but in the 17th century, and these paintings, of course, are hung in Catholic churches, convents, monasteries. That's Francis being stigmatized. How different is that from the one you saw before? And there's St. Anthony of Padua. And one, I showed this image in one class where student asked, is, is, is the infant Jesus going up or coming down? And I uh, impishly said as a reply, well, it doesn't matter, but it's quite obvious they're playing Jesus ball, <laughs> tossing them back and forth. My wife and I used to do that with our youngest son when he was very tiny at the beach. We'd you know, throw him for each other. <laughs> St. Dominic himself, there's a story about him levitating. St. Hugo, and this painting hangs in the Louvre Museum, some unknown Franciscan friar levitating in mystical ecstasy, and angels come and do his work in the kitchen while he's levitating in ecstasy. And then there's the strangest of all, bilocation. What is bilocation? being in two places at the same time. How's that possible? St. Francis did it. St. Joseph of Cupertino actually showed up at his mother's deathbed uh, because he had promised to be there to help her die well. But he's hundreds and hundreds of miles away. But no one, again, an extreme case, no one can compete with this nun 
sobre María de Jesús de Alba. It's the exact contemporary of Joseph of Cupertino. And Newton. She becomes a bilocating mystical missionary. And this I find fascinating. Keep in mind, women could not be missionaries. I mean, they could establish convents in foreign lands and so on, but the actual work of converting the natives was a male job. She becomes a bilocating, full-blown missionary. Who, without ever leaving her convent in Agreda, in Aragon, shows up in New Mexico over 500 times and Christianizes the Humano peoples. Let me back this up. We have all kinds of testimony of this happening, her own, as well as people who supposedly witnessed her being there. It's all very, very fuzzy around the edges. The testimony here is very fuzzy because the testimony comes from years after it's supposedly happened. And she herself doesn't even know how to explain this. But it's very clear that she thinks for sure she's a female. And when she's asked, well, how do they understand you? You don't speak the Humano language. I don't know, it just happens. It's like the apostles in Jerusalem after Pentecost. So she knows enough theology to kind of formulate this. But I'll add this. She is not the only one doing this. As I was researching her, I found many other ones before her and also after her who make the same claims. And something I have not had time to research either is that I found many nuns in the New World, in Mexico and Peru, who do the same thing and serve as women missionaries. And some of them make outlandish claims. One of them even, in addition to serving as a missionary, claims that she has fought against the Protestants in Europe. <laughs> and one of them claimed that she had killed Swedish king to stay as adults with her own hands. <laughs> the Inquisition processes these women, right? And some are declared fakes, and some are declared the genuine art. But Maria de Agreda also claims another extreme miracle, which is that the Virgin Mary communicates with her and dictates to her her life. So she takes notes as Mary dictates, and that's how many volumes it took. It's a massive book entitled The Mystical City of God. <clears throat> but enough of bilocation, serving as a scribe to the Virgin Mary. We can say, we know for sure, this is the first man ever to go up in the air. But he required a hot air balloon to do so. Jean-Francois Pilate de Rosier. Yeah. But he, uh, tragically, uh, just a few years after his first flight died while crossing the English Channel, his balloon blew up on him. Oops. 
I'll end with this. Back to the devil. There's the wrong kind of levitation because witches supposedly fly. And this is where you find lots of trial records, court records, of people testifying, yeah, she's a witch, I saw her flying. As a matter of fact, the beginning of the end of witchcraft trials in England takes place in the late 17th century when someone brings up a witness who saw so-and-so was on trial for being a witch and saw her fly. The judge's decision, inadmissible, there is no law against flight. <laughs> By then, the, you know, the enlightenment is, is, is starting. Skepticism. Wrong, but definitely possible, according to both Protestants and Catholics. I found an account from 1693 in Boston of none other than increased matter who had taken part in the Salem witch trials with testimony from 10 other men about a young girl who was uh, possessed by the devil. All 10 men jumped on top of her, so they say, and up she went down. And this is 1693 Boston Calvinists. So then there's levitation of the fake kind. And boy, was this big among 19th and 20th century spiritualists. Very big. Levitating tables and chairs and levitating bodies. Uh, but levitation, of course, is absolutely possible. You can buy these two items there on Amazon. <laughs> and China is full of levitating trains, and so is Japan. We're way, way, way behind, way behind. And is bilocation possible? We do it all the time, <laughs> all the time, and had to, still do. So what to make of all this? There's this argument, kind of like a domino sequence kind of argument. If you knock over one miracle, all miracles fall. And if all miracles fall, then transcendence, the existence of the supernatural, also falls. And it's all wrong. It's all ridiculous. Not impossible, but ridiculous. And of course, there's also the oldest argument of all, that miracle is, is really something that's just an interpretation of some event that can't be explained. And there are natural miracles. And I'll end with this, because as a historian, I can say, I know of one miracle. My wife and I were told by all experts that we had a 0% chance Zero of ever having children. We have children. <laughs> so I see. I say that's a miracle. A doctor might say, "Well, that's just you know, these things happen. We just can't explain them." And we're back to that, right? You know, that's the quirky thing. Things that can't be explained. CBS 60 Minutes ran a show once, two decades ago, 
from the back where they interviewed the Monsignor who was in charge of taking all the miracle accounts into consideration. And here's what he had to say. I look for doctors who are atheists because their testimony is the most valuable because they can say as scientists, as men of medicine, we cannot explain how this happened because it never happens. And I found that just fascinating because you know what? That process began all the way back in the 17th century of establishing the devil's act because uh, miracles are tricky. Miracles are very tricky. And the trickiest part of it all is not sort of the intellectual, metaphysical uh, question. What's going on in the point of attack? But, as uh, some might point out, why do they happen all the sunrise? If in fact they can happen, why do they only happen sometimes? So I'll leave it at that.